In this episode, Samuel Longcare and I talk about philosophy, religion, and science. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Samuel. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Wyatt. Well, I'm uh, excited to talk to you. I know we've talked for a little bit before I hit record here, but we, we've met before. We've talked a little bit before, like over a decade ago, and I've seen you a little bit online. Um, I listened recently to your I think it's a 10-part series that you just finished. It is, yeah. Called Becoming Human. And I just, I was actually hooked. I listened to it when I went for jogs. Uh, I was playing a game with my brothers in Cali- brothers-in-law in California. And I think I listened to it then or something like that. I can't even remember exactly. But it was just kind of, I just found it really intriguing because what you did was uh, <laughs> somehow summarize about 2,000 years of intellectual and religious history <laughs> into a 10-part <laughs> podcast, which I know that you must have skipped a lot. Um, but one of the things I wanted to start with, just ask you, like, what made you want to start this podcast, Becoming Human, and kind of what are you hoping to accomplish through it? Sure, thanks. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a shorter and a longer answer. I'll just start with the shorter answer, and if you want to talk about the longer answer, we can. I mean, the the shorter answer is that, I mean, the, so the, the podcast is titled Becoming Human, a podcast for species in crisis, and the first season, which you're talking about, is a is a coherent 10 episode, um, you know, kind of oral essay, you could say, or an oral book, um, which is the foundation of what I think people need to understand to understand the world we live in productively. And so the simplest reason I did it is because my view of what philosophy is means that ultimately it's not um, an academic thing, even though that's not a bad thing. And it's not even fundamentally a professional thing, even though people need to figure out how to make money. Philosophy is fundamentally about human beings' capacity to live well in the world. And therefore, the concerns that I have, I, you know, I'm aware many other people have similar concerns. And I, you know, I have written an academic book, which was a significant expansion of my dissertation called Philosophy is Religion. And, uh, but I'd also taught in many different contexts, popular contexts, private kind of communal context, you know, academic context. And people seemed to really be interested in the sort of perspective I had. And people kept asking me if I had a podcast. So I, I, I never started one because I didn't have the audio stuff right. And so I finally got the opportunity to doing a kind of a kind of longer short-term consulting or contracting job. I worked for a podcasting company. And as I got more insight into the industry, I thought, oh, I, I think this might be the right time to, to finally launch this. So I launched it on the one hand, because I thought the material really mattered and I wanted to get it to people for free. And on the other hand, there's a kind of very strategic reason about just where I think we are culturally. And, you know, I want to get, I want to start intervening in some of the cultural debates and start reframing things, both to get my own work out and to just try to build a community of friends and allies from all different walks of life and, and ideologies who might just share similar concerns. Well, you've done that. In fact, um, so after listening to this podcast, now I've read some of your articles in Marginalia, and I do intend to, I mean, I don't know when your book will eventually come up, but I do intend to read, uh, I guess the book is sort of based on these podcasts a little bit well, too, the right? Book the, opposite. A, the book is different. It's a bit more narrow. It's like, cause it's a UP press book. So right okay. now it's with a UP press, you know, hopefully going to, it's going through that long process you to go right. through to try to get an academic book published. But I do want to write popular stuff actually more in tune with the podcast, but, um, yeah, I think you can see the podcast is the kind of the, the 
the the serious but intended to be very accessible dimension of my work where i do think it's extremely important to translate significant work into a way that the largest possible audience can reach it because if the work matters then we should be willing to do the work to get it to people who, who want it and academics i know this because it's my job at marginalia is academics are not trained to to communicate clearly and so i think you know if you have ideas you really care about it's really worth investing in trying to you know communicate well and and get as large an audience as you can um before i move on have you ever read helen sword's book uh stylish academic writing no i don't think so okay. i just it's when you were, when you were mentioning that i think you might like it <laughs> it's uh kind of fits into what you're saying so uh you mentioned something at the beginning uh that you think kind of philosophy isn't just for the sort of academics, but it's for all of life or it's for some sort of practical concerns. What do you mean by that? Because I think probably most of us, when we think of philosophy, think of stern pictures of German, uh, like Kant or something like that with, a, with yeah. a cigar. And that's something that's for other people. It's interesting. It's part of history, but it's not really part of my life because I work a job and I have a family and philosophy is just something I don't consider or even think to consider. So why, what are you arguing? Why are you saying it's practical and part of life? Well, what I'm arguing on the one hand is extremely simple and uh, on the other hand, extremely radical. It's simple because it's what philosophy for most of its existence has always been, which is philosophy was always understood to be a particular kind of way of life, not exclusively or even predominantly what we would consider something like an academic enterprise. The way of life that philosophy is and was in Greek antiquity, for example, included what we would now think of as scientific and academic pursuits, but it wasn't its fundamental identity. It actually included the whole of life. And in fact, what philosophy was in antiquity was much more the precursor to what we now think of as religion. And this is a historical fact. It's not a well-understood one. It's why I've written the book I wrote based on my dissertation at Yale. So in one sense, it's sort of just, I, I eventually came to the conclusion that what philosophy really was, was very much like what we think of as religion, but in a way, I think a better version of what we think of as religion. And so um, I think that's really important for people to understand. So, but there's another personal reason, which is the easier way, to, without getting into all the historical details, like I do in my podcast, is everyone is a philosopher potentially because every child is extremely philosophical. I mean, the, the great ancient philosophers thought that philosophy begins in wonder, that we don't understand something and we just wonder at it. And children are like this. Children ask the most difficult metaphysical questions. They ask, where is God? They ask, what is death? They ask, why do people die? They say, what is sex, right? And if you think about any of these questions, they're extraordinarily difficult to answer, right? You can, you can take something as crude as that latter example. It's not easy to answer. If you just mean copulation, animals do it. That's not actually an answer. It's actually very hard to say, what is human sex? It's like as different from animal sex as eating is from what animals do, because we have meals. And in fact, our highest religious rituals center around food. So humans have this weird ability to transform everything they touch that seems to have a version of itself in the animal world into something radically deeper and even potentially transcendent. And so if something as simple as food or sex turns out to turn to wonder before our very eyes, then how much more wondrous is it to begin to just say, who am I? What am I supposed to do? Did I do the right thing? If I did the wrong thing, what am I? Right. So those are all philosophical questions. I think humans confront them every day. And I think they don't think of them as philosophical because it's not their fault. We're not taught to think 
that there's a kind of actual resource that helps us literally live and think and feel differently and more clearly in our life. But I think that's what philosophy originally was. It was a way of life centered on love. And the object of that love was wisdom, which religious traditions have always identified with God. And even if you don't believe in God, you know, you presumably want to know how to live well. And in that sense, I think you want to know how to be a good philosopher. So one thing you said really uh, hit me. Um, you talked about how when you're really young, you begin to ask philosophical questions. So uh, I have a couple of kids and in my kind of parenting model, one of my informal principles is I answer every question in a detailed way as if it's no matter how silly or broad it is. And actually with, when my daughter was three, we used, I, used, I remember sitting in her, in her room and for like 45 minutes, maybe longer talking about death with her, but not in like a morbid way, but just like what it means to die, what it means to live. And we still have these kinds of like theological and philosophical conversations, but now she's four now, but she'll ask these kinds of like profound things. And then I'll have to talk about her, talk to her about it and work through the level of causation, why this and this and that. Um, now it's kind of interesting. I have to talk to her about like the solar system and gravity, <laughs> and, like, <laughs> how it all works because of my informal parenting principle to answer every question. Uh, so, but I, anyways, I think most parents of your parent and listening to this will know that your kids ask like deep questions, pretty central questions. And I think most of us, well, I don't know this for a fact. I'm assuming many parents maybe try to give simplest, simple answers to these questions, but man, kids, they can talk to you for hours about it. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of wild. No, it's, that's right. I think that's lovely. And I don't have children myself, but I, I was, I was the last of three kids and then there were three more kids. So there's six total for yeah. my family and they were much younger. So I kind of, you know, was around very little babies as a, as a young teenager. And yeah, kids are, that, that's, that's beautiful. And I think your informal principle is very demanding for you, but it's probably very good for your children because I think children are naturally philosophers. And in the ancient sense, that included science, right? So like you're saying, you have to like, mm. wow, why does this happen? And, and we kill that. I mean, that's itself a big story, but right, we, we, a lot of people mock the romantics, but the romantics are fundamentally right. I mean, Wordsworth's owed, you know, towards intimations of immortality is one of the most extraordinary poems in, in modern European poetry. And, you know, he has that beautiful line about children that they come into the world trailing clouds of glory. And in spite of whatever certain Christians may think about sin, which those are all really valid discussions, it's still the case as you see with your own child. Children are closer to wonder. Mm -hmm. And something about what we call maturation kills it. And that is not a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's something because that we, we call older, maturation, but exactly. it may not actually we, be. I think when, when we get older, crisis points in our life force us back to our childhood questions. Like, and if we don't come back to them in our adult life, we will have to be haunted by them on our deathbeds because then they will no longer be the wondrous child questioning. They will be the old person confronting an abyss that they've never yet looked at. Well, you make the point in your podcast that if you get into philosophy, you're going to ask a lot of questions and it's not always going to be comforting. It's not always going to create a, a sense of stability. Now, I might slightly disagree um, because of my personal experience, but I understand where you're coming from. Uh, and I think part of it maybe is if you don't ask those questions, then when you finally meet them at 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, especially later in life, if things haven't gone as well as you hoped and if materialism hasn't really fulfilled you the way that you hoped it will, and then you think about things like death, divorce, trauma, tragedy, 
uh, it becomes really hard to think through how that works, especially if we're trained to always look for the next kind of high of experience and the next good thing. You haven't really, I don't know, meditated on <laughs> the more serious things of life. So uh, that can be helpful, at least with my family. We try to talk through those things, even when they're little, though maybe ways that are appropriate for kids. Um, right. Jumping kind of back into some of the things you talked about, uh, you, I mean, you start way back in terms of the history of philosophy in, in your podcast, uh, your series, whatever the right terminology is. And one thing you mentioned that I found really fascinating was that some of the ancient philosophers, in order to sort of verify their philosophy, were known to uh, practice magic. And I don't think any of us really think of that. Now, I know there's a bit of a religious connection um, when you think of like Socrates, because he was accused of uh, corrupting the morals of the youth. And I think false gods or denying the gods or something to that yeah, effect. Yeah, use you impiety, exactly. Impiety. Um, but, but you draw a connection with some evidence that early philosophers had this sort of magical or sort of mystical side to them. Can, can you just kind of like, maybe not all the details, just kind of tease out what you were, what you were trying to accomplish there? Yeah, well, I'll be honest, this is a very complex issue, both in terms of the modern problem of how we think about what terms like magic mean, and then the the way that those modern complicated problems are applied to history. So I'll, I'll try to do something short, but it's probably going to be something I'm screaming inside about being misleading. So, but well, just we can give a caveat that this is a really short summary and you can listen to the Becoming Human podcast yeah. to get the details and your forthcoming publications. Yeah. So, but, but w the way we think about magic, let's just say that's not asking any questions about it. The way we think about magic is the way the world, you know, has mostly been perceived, right? That is until very recently, everyone, including Christians, perceived the world in ways that we would consider wondrous or magical. They were sort of secret or occult causes is what the medieval scholastics would sometimes call them that connected things. And, um, and in antiquity, they were, of course, as a result of the fact that people believed that the world was, um, from our perspective, enchanted. They believed that it was possible that some human beings could be more than human. They could have access to higher powers, either from gods or from intermediary beings, like what the Greeks called daimons, that Christians eventually turned into demons or heroes. Um, or even you could be inspired by some being. Enthusiasm, as you probably know, as a Greek scholar, right, originally just meant a god entering you. Um, it was when a, a, a theos was inside of the person or when the influence of a god was operating through a human psyche. And so as a result, there was a very close connection between people we would regard as holy men or sages and what we would think of as magicians. Now, this is the, the, you're getting at something really deep. The reason we don't know this is as interesting as like the fact itself in a sense. One of the reasons we don't know it is because magic just makes everyone uncomfortable. Everyone. So... Modern academic scholars, by and large, are extremely uncomfortable with this. And as a result, they tend to have very strange lacuna or gaps in their awareness. Even really excellent scholars will just not want to think about how weird the ancient world was. But it, it is the case. It's a historical fact that the profile of a sage or holy man was often linked to the profile of a magician. The term magician, though, could be a very negative term. So sometimes people wanted to avoid it. But it's a historical fact, as I mentioned in the show, that Jesus was routinely thought of as a magician. Um, and that's the earliest artistic depictions of Jesus portray him alternately as either a magician or a philosopher beginning in the late second century, which is our earliest extant evidence of Christian art. And that seems strange to biblical scholars. But if you know the broader history, it's not strange at all, because many famous philosophers were 
identified as having, you know, remarkable magical abilities. Um, and that's partly because magic was similar in a way to what we even think of as science. It could be anything as extreme seeming as the kind of stuff we are afraid of in horror movies, someone chanting spells and conjuring demons, to something that looks a lot more like science, whereby understanding the underlying invisible principles that animate objects, you could do things that seem incredible to people. But, you know, philosophers, because they were a kind of proto-scientist, proto-magician, you could say proto-religious sage, they would often be people who constellated all of these images into one person. So they were wise, they were able to help people live well, and they were also able to use their knowledge to do quite extraordinary things. And that, as a result, some of the most famous philosophers in antiquity, like Empedocles or Pythagoras, had reputations for also being magicians. Well, I find that interesting. I, I think it helps to kind of contextualize the ancient world. And there's other things that you didn't mention too. I mean, some emperors were deified. They became divine to some degree. They took divine titles. Um, there's a kind of a whole world. Um, then, of course, Christians take up the idea of theosis, but apply it into their kind of salvation paradigm in the early centuries. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a number of things that can kind of help contextualize uh, what's going on in the early world to maybe make sense of how people could have understood Jesus, especially in the kind of Greco-Roman world. Um, there's a bit of a, a debate in, in, I would say, biblical studies between, you know, is it the Jewish background or the Greek background that's more dominant in how you interpret, you know, Jesus? So, you know, Martin Hengel, I think in the 70s, had this whole kind of Greek background. I think guys like uh, N.T. Wright are more Jewish background. And yet, I mean, the worlds really did mix. I mean, I think most people admit now. There's not really a way to kind of disentangle the Jewish world from the sort of Greek and Roman world. So it's interesting. Maybe you could just comment, like, from your understanding of history, you know, Jesus comes and... Oh, one more thing I want to mention, actually. In Protestant scholarship, there's now a kind of a move to see Jesus, in fact, I think intentionally or at least unintentionally uh, presenting himself as a philosopher. So you have things like on the Sermon on the Mount, the way that he teaches, brings disciples along with him. So there's a real move, in fact, to see Jesus as a kind of philosopher. So I, I kind of see some of the things that you're saying as maybe unintentionally contributing to that kind of piece of Protestant scholarship. So maybe just for a second, if you could kind of pull out and um, given what you know about Jesus and him doing miracles and teaching, how would he kind of fit into this paradigm of this ancient Greek philosopher, magician paradigm? Well, well, I mean, I actually intend to eventually publish scholarship on this. It's just, it's a very controversial area. First of all, because for me, the two issues of the category of philosopher and magician are related. And in my view, it's been a mistake in academic scholarship to separate them. And so, for example, you know, there was a famous book written in the 70s by one of still, one of the 20th century's greatest biblical scholars, Morton uh, Smith, I believe. I'm remembering his name right, um, which, you know, is called Jesus the Magician. And for some reason, biblical scholars uh, dismiss it, most of them, I think, having not read it, even though the scholar who wrote it was an impeccable scholar. He was one of the, he was a friend of the great scholar Arthur Darby Nock at Harvard, and Nock himself was just an amazing scholar. His All of his work is still, in a way, relevant, at least much of it. And so on the one hand, there's, there's long been evidence that usually I would say only people who are hardcore scholars of ancient Greek religion in a much broader sense than people tend to be New Testament scholars. New Testament scholars are a very weird group, as you may know. Biblical scholarship is this kind of weird inheritance of confessional theological concerns that you can do without being religious at all. But they inherit the patterns of thought of essentially the German liberal confessional university 
in the 19th century. And in that world, these kind of concerns were very separated because magic was completely embarrassing and you would have never wanted to associate Jesus with magic. And strangely, that's connected to the philosophical issue. So my, my argument, and I don't know if I should really, I guess I'll put this out there, but my, my view of this is that um, basically when you like a person and they're very powerful, you call them a philosopher. And if you don't like a person and they're very powerful, you call them a magician. Now, there's also an in-between space in which you can use the word magic neutrally. David Auna, for example, very distinguished New Testament scholar, I believe still in Notre Dame, he has a long article about the New Testament and magic in early Christianity. And one of his conclusions is that phenomenologically, that is the way that the early Christian practice appears, he says phenomenologically there is no way to distinguish early Christian practice from magic. And I think that's what every good scholar knows, is the term magic in one sense is just a term you either use or don't use based on kind of emotional or ideological concerns like protestants calling catholics magical right this has been a very it's literally a polemical technique that goes back to the very origin of the term magic and so the philosopher portrayal we know exists we know that jesus was seen as a philosopher but we also know he was seen as a magician and so i think to me the future of really i hope kind of philosophically inflected historical scholarship, philosophical in my sense, which is to say taking into account everything relevant, not just what academic disciplines think is relevant. I would like to see people combine a historical presentation of Jesus as both a philosopher and magician. And that I think we're still, we're still waiting for. I, I, my own fear is that New Testament scholars, as valuable as their work often is, they exist often in an incredibly narrow intellectual world that does not really seem to understand how much work that's relevant to what they do has already been done, you know, 50 or 100 or sometimes even 150 years ago. But they were great scholars in the late 19th and early 20th century who wrote work on this type of material. Um, but, you know, most New Testament scholars don't have a really terrific handle on, say, someone like Plato. And if you don't understand someone like Plato quite well, it's very difficult to interpret, say, ancient religion because as a great French scholar said Plato is the kind of essentially the founder of Hellenistic religion but that goes to the issue of the beginning which is the separation of philosophy and religion in our minds doesn't just sort of hurt our personal potential to live a certain way I think it's dramatically damaged academics ability to accurately perceive the past well I think it's at least helpful to know how people were perceived if there's someone that was creating a way of life they had disciples they might do magic or miracle or however it's perceived at least when, I, when you're talking about help me to think through like okay so you have a guy like jesus in, in the first century but then you have someone living in ephesus in, in 120 and he hears about what happens uh with jesus and his disciples he might actually receive that as okay this is a new kind of philosopher and in fact some of the really early christians uh describe their sort of salvation experience in terms of finding the true philosophy so you know, Justin Martyr kind of famously has his whole thing where he's walking on the, the seashore. He finds an old man. And that old man communicates to him the true philosophy, which is essentially found in Christ. That really for the next, at least in my view, 100 years or so, Christians tend to think of Christianity as the true philosophy, the one that kind of transcends and completes the rest and gets, you know, obviously the things right. So Plato is viewed positively, but sort of as a, as a stepping stone, as it were. Mm. And maybe not positive is an interesting way to say it. He's used as someone who says a lot of true things, but needs to be understood within the sort of Christ or word centered point of view. So you have the kind of the logos theologies, what people used to call it at least. 
Well, that's interesting. At least for me, that was helpful just for some like contextualization stuff that I had never heard of or even thought about in terms of how ancient philosophers used sort of magical arts in order to, I don't know if verify is the right word, but in order to come alongside their um, Yeah, their I would just say it was, it was often part of the package. Okay. Um, so, you know, but yeah, I, the verifying, I wouldn't say that either, but just a brief comment on the point you're making. I mean, I would say the whole distinction between philosophy and theology is part of why patristic scholarship is so confused. There is nothing in history that answers to that distinction. But it's so important to patristic scholars to distinguish theology and philosophy that the most brilliant scholars, people I admire hugely, I think do amazingly good historical work and then create dramatically bad conclusions because they are so personally invested in some very historically irrelevant concern that may be related to their own context in the 20th or 19th century to say, oh, Catholic theology isn't the same thing as Catholic philosophy because there's some big debate, for example, and Catholic circles of the modern world about the territory of philosophy and religion or philosophy and theology. But in antiquity, what you're saying is not only true, it, it is the norm. From, from Justin Martyr and what all of the apologists, through what we could think of as the foundations of the Greek um, Orthodox tradition, which, you know, so if you think about it, the two kind of greatest sort of second, third century traditions have the same teacher. We think it's Ammonius. It's hard to identify which Ammonius, but Ammonius teaches both Plotinus, who is by far the most extraordinary Greek Platonist since Plato and Aristotle, and he also teaches Origen. And so Origen and Plotinus themselves are then become these fundamentally important figures in the ancient world. And so if you don't think the way we do about theology versus philosophy, then what you just see is there's incredibly innovative movements within broadly speaking ancient or late antique philosophy all of which are in conversation with each other in a way that we completely misrepresent when we act like, well, there's Christians and then there's pagans. Yes, there are, but people like Origen are as influenced by Plato as people like Plotinus are. And the tradition Origen is part of with Clement of Alexandria, and then that leads into the broad, I mean, Origen is the kind of foundation of the Greek tradition. Long before Origen is heretical, the really classic Orthodox, this is maybe not useful for you, for maybe all the listeners, but what we call the Cappadocian fathers, right, are profoundly indebted to origin. And they think of what they do as philosophy. It's explicit. Macrina, the sister of some of the great Cappadocians in the beautiful um, kind of life of her, she's presented as a philosopher. And right, this is, this is completely ignored and not understood by people who are much better scholars than I am in their area. I'm not claiming to be a patristic scholar, but as a historian of philosophy, I think it's a very big mistake when patristic scholars act like what they're doing isn't the exact same thing that any good uh, scholar of Iamblichus or Porphyry. And it's a mistake to not read all that stuff. And so that's part of the problem is there's so much to read and we all have to choose and pretend we're experts. But the truth is, if you're reading Origen and you're reading Basil of Caesarea and you don't know Plotinus, you're incompetent as a scholar. It's that simple. Why? Because Plotinus was understood, including by the Christians, to be one of the greatest theologians of the day. That's why Porphyry, his student, his tractate against the Christians was so dangerous that we have hardly anything left of it because it was so intelligent and it anticipated in so many ways, you know, modern historical critical scholarship. Again, I'm not, I, I, I don't side with Porphyry in these issues. I'm just pointing out, if you try to read the patristic evidence, apart from the fact that they're all engaging what we would call Platonism, as if it's some separate thing, I think you can't come to a good intellectual understanding or cultural understanding of it. So 
and again, I'm indebted to all the patristic scholars who I study, but I, I find these historiographical problems to be deeply concerning. And that's why I'm doing the podcast is both for academic and popular reasons, because I think these seemingly rarefied academic debates that we're now talking about that maybe are losing some listeners are actually deeply connected to very practical things like, is this issue scientific or is it religious, right? Well, we should back up and say, is that a good question? The same way when we're doing a scholarship in history, when someone says, is this philosophy or is it theology? The first question you should say, is that a legitimate historical distinction? Which the answer to me is clearly, no, it's not. And you get then a very different world. It's a wonderfully strange foreign world to the one we think is there, but I think one that's far more interesting and compelling. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you read the first thousand years of Christian history, Christian authors in their own words and writings, you mentioned Macrina, it's interestingly enough. So Gregory of Nyssa calls his sister Macrina, a true philosopher who taught him. And that would be, in one sense, entire, in my view, kind of a wild thing to say, especially with how women, women and philosophy were kind of tied together during that time period in the fourth century. It wasn't obvious, at least in some circles, that a woman could be a philosopher because there's an ontological difference among some authors. Uh, and so you have an interesting, like, high view, too, of, of women in the early church. Anyways, that's a bit of a tangent. Um, no, it's interesting. I agree. It'd be some, yeah. some other time. If you haven't had yeah, some other time. Yes, I, I, I think that's that... actually very significant for gender yeah. stuff. Uh, Plato is the most gender egalitarian of the ancient thinkers, and the Platonic tradition, as a result, tends to have a lot more gender egalitarian potential than the broadly very, you know, much more sexist, um, as you say, kind of dualistic ontology. But Plato thought women were, in every metaphysically relevant sense, equal to men. Even though he has remarks in his corpus, his clear teaching in the Republic is that either men or women can be the elite guardians of the state because they have the same mm -hmm. kind of souls. And that was a revolutionary position. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, Christian had a lot, of, a lot of transformations, but I think the one thing that you were getting at that I think was extremely helpful is that Christianity and philosophy, religion and philosophy during that time were not competing things. So I just think of, just for context, Aristides writing around 125. Uh, he sees basically three groups of people in the world and they're three competing ways of doing theology, essentially. So there's the, the Christian race, the Jewish race, and then there's the Greek race. So I don't really know this. The whole third race theology is a bit iffy, but he kind of went for it following, or at least in contemporary author, like uh, whoever wrote the letter to Diognetus, they had that kind of theology too. But the idea essentially is this, look, Christians have a new and better philosophy that has overcome these two competing ones that were, are good and great. Of course, they're always trying to tie it back to the most ancient Jewish scriptures because they're older right. as well. So there's a whole thing there, but it is interesting. They're not distinguishing themselves as against philosophy as a kind of a different mode of thinking, but rather it's the same mode of thinking, but theirs is true. <laughs> Where others are not. Right, and then there's better. even a, That's right. Yeah, the self-representation in the ancient world is of competing philosophical schools. And, and that's why I have no qualms arguing with, um, you could say my historical betters, because the evidence for my position is overwhelming. And the reason it's rejected is not because there's not overwhelming evidence, it's because it's incredibly inconvenient for modern religions and historiographical positions. But, you know, that's to me what's quite funny is like, if you actually just read, as you say, the early Christian writers on their own terms, they never talk about Christianity as a religion because religions, as I talk about in the podcast, religions didn't exist in antiquity in the way we think. So the only thing that answers to the description of what we call a religion is the term philosophy. And that's yeah. part of the revolution I want to inaugurate both academically and in popular culture, which is to 
to actually take seriously what it would mean to do history um, and philosophy as if they mattered, that is getting them right could change the way we think. And it's like, well, it's very different to see Christianity as one religion among other religions, uh, as opposed to seeing Christianity as a philosophy that's indebted to a lot of other philosophies. And maybe the Christian philosophers think that they're better than the other philosophers, of course, but that's a very different way of thinking. I think it's, it kind of opens up a lot more potential for sort of natural dialogue because the idea that Christians invented their own ideas, right? It's just not true. Whatever you think about Christianity, it's clearly profoundly indebted to both what we call Judaism now and what we would call Greek philosophy. Um, and they knew that and that was part of their anxiety. And so they're trying to figure that out. And I think Christians ever since have been trying to figure it out. And uh, unfortunately, if you're trying to figure it out in the background of your work, so that you're not paying attention to it, you end up just importing a lot of biases into historical scholarship, right? But in fact, the ancient world really is, as I say, and I like saying it's a foreign country, but it's the one that gave birth to us. So it is a foreign country. Foreign. Now, I don't remember if you, if you mentioned these in your talks, but you've written on this. One of the things that the Christian philosophers, any philosophers are doing is they're, they're doing metaphysics and metaphysics. You could almost put an equal sign to religion <laughs> or philosophy in this, in this mode anyways, because they're trying to meditate or describe what is truly real and stable. So I think when you're like, now I, I think I'd, I don't know if that's the right word, but I might slightly disagree with some of the things, you, the way that you characterize things, because I think um, there's actually a critique, a strong critique that we're not like the Greeks. And I know there's a lot of overlap, but with the doctrine of impassibility, which is kind of ironically, I think it's Adolf Harnock, one of those guys who basically says impassibility is, is an adoption of Greek philosophy. But in fact, at least in the second century, Christians, use that to say that actually God is not like the God of the Greeks because the God of the Greeks are, um, are the Greek gods, rather they are impassioned. They have bodies, flesh, nerves, they have uh, sexual appetites and all these kinds of things. Whereas God is impassable because of his simplicity. Now I know you'd probably say, well, of course there's platonic <laughs> undercurrents there, but I think there's, there's different claims. And I think the, I think it's useful to also mention the other side where Christians tend to say we're on the basis of revelation and the revelation is first principles from which we discern what is true and false. And then a lot of the early Christian apologists would say, yeah, Plato got this and this right, but he also got this wrong. Um, and of course the Plotinus is massive <laughs> later on. Yeah. Yeah. I think just really briefly there, it's just, I think there's a, in fact, there's a very interesting book by a scholar, Strumsa. I think, I think he's at Tel Aviv or Hebrew university. He's a very wonderful scholar of antiquity. And uh, he has a book called Barbarian Philosophy. I think it was more Zebeg, but yes, there's a, there's a very strong discourse of um, Christianity as a kind of barbarian, non-Greek philosophy, but that's exactly because of the anxiety about Greek philosophy. Um, and so in particular, in the Greek-speaking Christian world, you have a very big problem of differentiating yourself from the rest of the Greek philosophical schools, which you know perfectly well that you're in incredibly deep interaction with. And so, and we're talking about the kind of elite level, obviously, in a sense, there's obviously the liturgical component, which is really important from another perspective. But so, I mean, what you're saying is, is true, but like that critique you mentioned, any theologian or apologist who said that knows perfectly well that all of the Greek, um, all of the good philosophers, even if they're pagans, understand that the, um, the divine is impassable. But that's, that's part of the debate. That's why Christians are so close to Platonism because that critique only applies to either popular theology um, or it applies to non-Platonic theological schools, like arguably maybe the Stoics 
by the Epicureans, but the Platonists are the actual origin of the doctrine of impassibility in history. So if you just want to say, where do you get a really purified doctrine of God that answers to this kind of really metaphysically tough ideas like divine simplicity? Well, you get it in the Republic, first of all, and then you get it radically developed in Aristotle and then throughout the Platonic tradition. So by the time you get to Jesus, 300 years later, Philo is already writing at the time of the New Testament authors, an integration of Greek Platonic philosophy and, you know, the other philosophical schools with a, a Torah observant form of Judaism. And that form of Judaism is in the canonical New Testament. It's unquestioned. Craig Sterling at Yale is a great Philo scholar. Lots, every Philo scholar agrees the beginning of John 1 is deeply influenced by Philo. And it's a kind of Philonic or Platonic interpolation of Genesis 1, right? NRK, any, any mm -hmm. person in a synagogue in the Greek speaking world would hear NRK and they would think you're reading Genesis 1. And R.K. Epoiason, you know, in the beginning, God created, that's the beginning of the Septuagint. And then John is clearly playing on that and interpolating in R.K. and Halagos. And then, so he's literally kind of creating an interpolating commentary via a kind of Philo-Platonic view of the Greek text of the Hebrew Bible. And so it's, that if we want to run away from philosophy, there is nowhere we can run to avoid it. Especially if you're a Christian, it's in your Bible. So, yeah. And, well, I think and, John Barrett. It's not a bad thing. It's it's just an exciting thing. It just means we have to we have to think about it so that whatever our positions are, you know, it's it's ultimately something we can integrate, which is up to each community, of course, to figure out how to do that. Yeah. Well, I think John Barrett calls John one the Christian creation story because it's uh, kind of retelling uh, Genesis one through Logos theology. I think it's also helpful too. Like I think what you're at least partly saying is that the world in which early Christianity existed, had a whole set of language already for metaphysics, for religion, for philosophy. Like today, I kind of use this example. We all believe in gravity, but <laughs> gravity is a, as a concept, as an invention, as a, as, a, as a way of describing the world is relatively new in history. But yet we all just use it. It's just part and parcel of how we talk. It's, it's part of what's true around us. And so it actually stands to reason that a lot of the New Testament documents would use common language and idioms to describe how things are real. Of course, they would claim that's through revelation. So like in John 1, that yeah, there might be a lot of Logos theology, or, or at least through Philo, but I think they would also claim this is an accurate and true representation of the revelation that's in Jesus Christ. Um, now, okay, we're here. So how do we uh, transition to the, like, to the jump way across history? <laughs> uh, today, we think religion and philosophy are two different spheres. Um, you discuss this a bit in your podcast, uh, you know, through the enlightenment and all that kind of stuff, but just kind of like big picture, what, what, what happened between the pre-modern and post-modern, <laughs> the pre-modern and whatever happens after the pre-modern world that makes us drive philosophy and religion to two different spheres. Like wh why do I feel like today that I'm not engaged in philosophy and, and I don't necessarily need to read philosophy books if I'm a Christian or a religious person? Well, that's a great question. It's, it's honestly very complex. And so I, I, I'm not going to answer it in a sense, literally. And my book tr tries to provide a, a very um, selective, but historically and academically responsible answer to that, which has a lot to do with a lot of different factors, both institutional, it has to do with the rise of the medieval university. And then it has to do with, you could say, intellectual or ideological things. But I think if we were just to simplify this and tell a kind of just so story that isn't false, but it's much more simple than what you might say in a different context. I think um, 
at a certain point in what we would call the modern world, in fact, I would identify in a sense modernity as a mode of consciousness. So first of all, we should say, what is the modern world? And I think we, if you think about modernity, there's two very different discourses which listeners might want to be aware of. One is we date the modern world between anywhere from the 15th to the 17th century. But when we talk about modernity, people often mean something much more narrow, which is roughly speaking the 19th century to now. And there's actually a very good reason for that. Something C.S. Lewis actually puts quite brilliantly in his inaugural lecture when he took up his chair of Renaissance and Medieval Literature at Cambridge near the end of his career. He gave an incredible le uh, lecture. I think it's called De Descriptione Temporum, or Description of the Times, I think is the title. And people can find it, I believe, online or in his works. But he gives a view where he says, look, as I see it historically, and, and Lewis was one of the most learned men in the 20th century in his field. He was an amazing scholar whether you know anyone listening is a Christian or not, Lewis was an incredible scholar of literature and, and ideas. And he says, look, actually, I see the break happening sometime around or after Jane Austen. But basically, from essentially the first century all the way to like the 18th century, it's kind of one thing. And then something happens. And so I think, I think that's very important. I think that's a lot of really good scholarship has, I think, since confirmed from independent directions, Lewis's idea. And that's how I think of it. When I taught medieval history at Yale um, to my students, I told them, look, we have to end where the conventional chronology ends, which is the Renaissance. But you could do a medieval history course that ended at the Enlightenment. And it would be as, I think, an, an as interesting or almost more valid way of doing the history, which is what I'm doing in a popular way in the podcast, is I show how the Enlightenment is directly connected to Protestantism and to Christianity. And I think so. So essentially, I think the, the shortest way to answer your question is to say that story about why did we suddenly experience a caesura or a break in historical continuity? What, whatever happened then, it also led to a break in memory. And that break in memory is radical and I think had many stages, both in the Reformation and then in 17th and 18th century. But the effect of it is what you describe, which is the effect of the, this great forgetting is we don't remember a lot of like what we are anymore in a very just primordial sense. We don't remember what it means to say philosophy. We don't remember what it means to talk about science. We don't remember what religion means. And you know, what's funny about religion, I'll just mention this uh, as the end of this remark is because we don't understand what religion is, we've literally forgotten what it always referred to, right? Which religion used to primarily just be one virtue among others. It's a very important virtue. But religio in Latin is a virtue that usually translates in Greek, words like the skea or eusebia, um, or, you know, it could also be something like hosia or something like this, a, a pious person. And so we've forgotten all of that. If you ask a modern Christian, what is piety? That connects with no one in our world. Why? Because even if a person's a Christian, they and secular people alike share a complete forgetting of what piety is. And what piety is has been replaced by this idea that there are these things called religions that stand out there in the world like Islam. And that idea is simply, in a sense, false. Again, people who haven't heard the podcast, I explain this in detail in episodes one and two, but I think that what happened was we, for a lot of reasons, needed to forget a lot of things to try to pre pretend that the world we live in was as eternal and valid as people thought it was in the 19th century. And it, it wasn't, we made a lot of progress and then we forgot a lot of things. And so now I think we're starting to remember them again. And I think we need to remember them. I think memory is a source of healing. It's often painful, 
to remember trauma is painful, but remembering is part of how you heal trauma. You have to learn how to remember well. And so I think part of the art of history or the art of philosophy or the art of theology, if you want to call it that, is to learn to remember faithfully so that you can pay your debts to tradition and, you know, honor your parents, as it were. Hmm. Well, that's a kind of a big picture overview. One uh, vignette that you brought up in your podcast, and I guess I actually knew this, it just, I forgot, <laughs> it wasn't in my memory, uh, was that during the French Revolution, there was actually um, a cult of reason built. And then, and I don't know if I knew this part, but they used the Notre Dame as a sort of place where they practiced their cultists and their liturgical, whatever they did. Uh, I just thought that was really interesting because even during this time of this kind of the ascendance of science, the ascendance of a new way of seeing the world and, and liberty and all that kind of stuff, philosophy at this point was still pretty tied to what we would call religion, at least today. It was tied to kind of these forms of liturgical practice and I don't know if they would call it worship, but of religious service. Um, why do you, like, so that's already still happening in the late 18th century. That's only about just over 200 years ago. So what really happens then in the 19th century that, like, how do we lose that? Like, why does philosophy become so, I don't know, just so guarded away from religion? What is the kind of mechanism? I know there's not just one mechanism. I know it's too simple, but what is... What's going on in the, in the broader stroke, the kind of stream of thought that's happening in the, in the North American and European world that pushes these two things further and further apart? Well, I mean, again, that's a, that's a huge question. So I'll, I'll try to answer it uh, well, and I'll just select one of many dimensions you could emphasize. But I think probably the simplest dimension to emphasize would be the, the triumph of Newtonian philosophy. And so I mean, first of all, right, so the word philosophy well up into the 18th century, including into the 19th century, the word philosophy still has a much broader connotation than it does now, which is it's say the connotation of philosophy includes the, the word that we now use, science. So philosophy includes what we call science and philosophy includes what we call theology and metaphysics and philosophy includes what we call ethics. So philosophy was beginning to take on a distinctive academic form in the beginning of the German research university, the end of the 18th and formally begins in the university of Berlin in the beginning of the 19th century. But the, what's really happening there is an institutionalization of the enlightenment and the enlightenment, if you're going to put the ideas of philosophy and the enlightenment down to one person, which again would be a simplifying thing, but not wrong in this case, it is Newton. I mean, Newton is so influential, and this is hard for people to understand because we think of Newton as just a scientist, and this is like meaning we don't understand science. Newton was in his own era what was called a natural philosopher, and Newton was competing against another completely total worldview, which was Descartes. So Descartes was about 50 years older than Newton, and Descartes had already laid the foundations of the mechanical worldview, which Descartes was a devout Christian, but he had a radically different metaphysics, you could say a radically different theology about what the world was made up of. And, you know, he was a brilliant mathematician, a brilliant scientist, but all of this was for him part of philosophy. So when Descartes wrote his philosophical system, it included what we would call modern physics. It included what we would call you know, advanced math, you know, he invented, made major insights, of course, into mathematics, particularly geometry. But from Descartes' perspective, this was all philosophy. 
it was different branches of philosophy, but you would have called all of that philosophy, everything from what he thought about God to what he was doing as a mathematician. So Newton is coming into a world in which the sort of philosophy and the worldview to beat on offer is Cartesian mechanics. And Newton agrees with Descartes that the world is mechanical. It's not in like, it's not, and this is again, I can't explain this, but it's not the world of the ancients. It's not Aristotle. It's a very different world in which you can explain everything through just mechanical causation. So he agrees with Descartes about that. But then as we know, of course, he's able to integrate a huge number of scientific phenomenon combined with radical innovations in math, which he and Leibniz, you know, co-discovered. It was one of the greatest, you know, fights in the history of math, co-discovered the calculus seemingly around the exact same time. Um, and Newton's philosophy won, but when it won, it was dramatically simplified. So this, was a, this would be a whole big story one could do a whole episode on, but if you, Newton's actual philosophy had a lot more hedging about what he thought the fundamental nature of reality was. Newton was a very concerned theologian. He was heretical by a Trinitarian standpoint. He was what we call an Arian um, now or Unitarian. But Newton was deeply theological and he thought God was a very important part of the cosmos. But by the time a hundred years later that Newton's philosophy and his mechanics is sort of democratized into a popular worldview, most of the theological and religious complexity, and indeed even the philosophical complexity of Newton's system has evaporated. And all you get is a kind of child's vision of Newton, which even very smart people like Voltaire helped put into the world. And in this child's vision, there's no place for God, or God is just a God of the gaps, which is how you get that deistic narrative. And so really the success of Newton, and, and therefore in a sense what we would call the scientific revolution in a very simplified way, that is really one of the key catalysts of changing people's perception of what philosophy is. Because if you think philosophy is Newtonianism, then philosophy seems like it's purely mechanical. It's primarily about math. It's quite really difficult stuff. And so again, that's not a total answer, but really the actual success of Newtonian mechanics and the simplification of Newton's whole worldview plays a huge role in the idea of philosophy being something that's, if not hostile to, it's indifferent to. It's just something different than, say, theology or metaphysics. Even though, again, Newton really thought that stuff was really important, but we, that's not what lasted. What lasted was just, you know, the parts of the Principia that were relevant to, you know, subsequent developments in physics. It's and interesting. Optics. You might even just, in a very overly simplistic form, say, because of what he proposed worked, people saw that it worked over and over and over and kind of forgot his kind of bigger view of metaphysics and religion. And then you kind of have, I guess, the birth of or the eventual coming to be of the modern view of science. And that's an interesting topic. I know it's like a massive topic, but uh, if you come into the 20, at least even the 20th century, science, at least this is just, I'm talking about more anecdotally, not necessarily at a textbook level. Science, at least for me, when I think of science, it's something that's built on solid first principles. It's tested over and over, is, is trustworthy, and works. But I don't really understand science to be connected to religion and faith in an obvious way. Now, maybe I do personally, but I'm kind of talking yeah. just to the average person. Um, so what, like jumping to kind of more the present, we have uh, religion and science and faith and science and they often seem at odds with each other. There is a like a chasm between the two, like Lazarus and Dives. <laughs> you know, they, they can't really see each other. And maybe science is actually at the lower part of shale. 
uh, for some, and if you're in religion, you're kind of up here and you're looking down on it and skeptical of it. Um, how, how would you kind of describe that in your own words, like this distinction that we have today? And why do you think we are where we are? Well, yeah. So, I mean, this is a big issue. I think I think it's helpful to focus and maybe say on, you know, you could say the North American context yeah. and the English speaking context. Um, you know, in a sense, the division between science and um, faith or science and religion is part and partial of the division between philosophy and religion. In fact, I would suggest it's a kind of consequent of it. So in a way, this is a kind of carry on to the the earlier question. And you could tell a lot of stories about why this happened. But I, in the most simple, well, it's not the most simple, but this is the story I would tell because this is part of my own scholarship. Um, when you get the institutionalization of Christianity in the modern research university, which it means specifically you have to remember when the modern research university is born, Germany is at the forefront of this. University of Berlin is the kind of archetype of what we think of as a research university. And Schleiermacher is the first great theologian who holds the chair of theology. And Schleiermacher is known to some people. He was a great Platonic scholar. He was a great classicist as a result and a church historian. But what we know him for in history of theology is he was an important systematic theologian. And people call him the father of Protestant liberalism. And Schleiermacher needed theology to be distinct from what was called philosophy in the university, the narrower idea of philosophy as a field or discipline. And he needed it to be very distinct from the natural sciences. And part of what I think he wanted to do was to create an idea of theology that would be immune to alteration by the other sciences. Because Steinmarker was very smart. He knew if you, if you base Christianity as an academic discipline, that is the academic study of Christianity as truth in the university, if you make that contingent on history, say, historical study, or even on natural philosophy in the broadest sense, and including philosophy like Kant's philosophy, then I think Schleimacher understood, and I'm arguing this in a paper I'm writing now for History of Science Journal, Schleimacher understood then theology is going to be as variable as the rest of the natural sciences or the rest of history is, which I think actually anyone could recognize would be a big problem. And so Schleimacher actually created an idea of theology, which I think underlies this idea that basically religion and science are totally different things. And again, you could tell different stories about this, but this I think is one of the really big causes of this. And so liberal Protestants become purveyors of this idea. They are very influential in saying that, look, science and religion can't really conflict, or science and religion are very harmonious, which is in a way a very old Christian idea. Thomas Aquinas would have said the same thing, but with words that meant a lot um, deeper and broader things than what the 19th century people were saying. And so that becomes one big view, which is that the liberal Christian tradition thinks whatever the natural world can tell us, it can't possibly conflict with revelation, which basically conservatives think in principle too. But then the, the specific cause, that's the kind of, you could say the grammatical level, which is to say there's a deep incentive to make theology immune from the alteration of other changes in our worldview so that you can have kind of essential Christian content that isn't threatened. But then, of course, you have the sciences themselves, which with Darwin have a number of positions, which aren't unique to Darwin, that seem to directly contradict core aspects of Christianity. So we can talk about this if you want or not, but I would say there's two very different issues here. One is, why do you get the broad cultural discourse of science and religion as different things? And that, I think, has to do with the separation of spheres 
in other words, specialization in the modern university, the attempt to protect Christianity from historical alteration through science in one sense. But then there's another issue, which is why is it particularly that conservative Christians, especially since the 19th century, have seemed to have been in an embattled relationship to science? And that has to do with the actual content of discoveries in the natural sciences. And so I think those two discussions are related, but they're distinct. So I think there are real challenges if you're a conservative Christian in how to think about the world that we live in. But I would say that's okay. People felt the same way when Aristotle was rediscovered and Thomas Aquinas was trying to think through, okay, if Aristotle is really right about the natural world, how do we rethink things that preserve the truth of everything we see as true? And I think conservative Christians, I think admirably actually, there's ways in which you can do it very stupidly. And I think the Young Earth Creationist Movement um, has a lot of unfortunate dimensions along those lines. But broadly speaking, conservative Christians have been in a kind of theological crisis, which is they're trying to understand how to think about the truth of their own pre-existing commitments they've inherited from the past and square them with the truths of the world that we've, we think we've really discovered. And that's a very hard thing to do. Mm. Not because I think it's impossible. It's just I think cultures go through these tension points where you, everything that you think you believe does not fit together. And so, but the thing I would say to people who aren't religious or to people who aren't conservatives is a lot of people laugh at conservative Christians like they're somehow backwards for thinking this way. And I don't think that's true. I think actually conservative Christians are much more self-conscious because of their religious commitments of something that is actually generally true for everyone, which is the world we live in does not make sense. It does not make sense. If you try to square everything we claim is true in our culture, you get massive contradictions. And so if you're concerned about that, it starts to create a bit of a challenge for you. And so Christians have it in a big way, again, only if you want to talk about this, because of stuff like the doctrine of sin and how it connects with um, geological history. But, um, but that Christian problem, which is a big theological problem, you could say is a specific form of a general problem, which is that we have more knowledge than we know how to actually understand its truth. We don't quite know how to square or sum up all the things we know. And that means there's something wrong. Either we need a bigger sort of picture or some of what we think we know isn't right. And I think it's both things. I think we need a bigger picture to interpret the world that we live in that's different than the one we have. And there's also things that we think we know that I think are going to turn out to be not true. That's interesting. So I, so I, would, I would be one of those conservative Christians, although maybe not in every area that you mentioned. And one thing that I've just found helpful in this discussion uh like with the relation between faith and science uh is um how did you put this not to be afraid but to ask every conceivable question that you want i mean you don't have to but if you want to and I, I like the way you said it like if you're conservative there's actually a good reason for why you might have questions about certain things because of the received the language i'll use is revelation because i believe in it and yeah, you hold to that and then you see all these things around you and they seem different or perhaps scary or unclear. But at least for me in my, in my faith, my life, I've always just found it like, I mean, if what's true is true, just ask any question and you don't have to be afraid. I remember, I don't know in my current context, that's as common, but I still remember like 12 years ago living in the States and I've been at a church and listening, I might've been like a Sunday school or like a lecture that was about how um, climate change was made up. I was just it, kind of reflecting on that. Like that's a weird place to have that 
lecture, that Sunday school. <laughs> like, what, what? I mean, maybe it is that. I'm not even going to talk about the scientific data. It's just, it's just such an odd thing to have to have done. Like, why would you go and have a Sunday school class on why uh, some sort of analysis of how the world is changing in temperature is simply false? And then also, what gives you the authority to to actually say that, um, given that the person was not not a scientist? Um, anyways, I don't want to like dive into the discussion whether it's true or not because I know people have really strong views no, on that. No, but actually, I, I think it's interesting. I, I take your point. It's a good point. But what's interesting to point out is liberal Christians do the same thing just on the other end. Okay. Right? So in other words, a liberal Episcopal church, which I've, I used to be a member of an Episcopal church and have many, many friends who are Episcopals and I've, I've taught it for Episcopal churches and stuff. So just one of many examples, but, you know, one of the big mainline old denominations, they would talk about climate change, of course, regarding it, you know, as uh, in terms of the scientific consensus that it's true, but they might also be bringing it up in Sunday school. So it's just to say, it is interesting. Uh, we, we, we beat up on the conservatives often, especially if one is conservative, because they're kind of one's own team. So it right. makes sense. I think we should always be more critical of our own team, whatever that is, and let other people handle, you know, their own, their own family, as it were. Um, but that's actually something everyone does, right? If you think about the climate change movement in general, part of the why the climate change movement is so controversial, I think, has not to do with the science per se, but because so much of the science is turned into a salvation story. Mm -hmm. And so once you turn scientific data and you make it part of a narrative or myth, then it takes on the exact same dynamics as anything that becomes mythic or religious, which means that you will sort of teach it in a moralizing way. And so that's, I think, a general problem, which is, you know, conservatives in this case are, are I think, for complicated political reasons in North America, you know, I, uh, think that somehow climate change isn't happening or that it doesn't mean what people think it does. But I actually think everyone is invested strangely right. in a kind of religious interpretation of climate change. And I think that it has to do with what we discussed earlier and with what I talk about in my show, which is that the modern scientific way we think about the world is not actually separate from religion. They've actually been very closely linked up, I think to the very great detriment of both what we think of as religion and what we think of as science. But it's a historical fact that stuff like Darwinism becomes a religion from the very beginning for some people. And so similarly, I think you might think that all of the data on climate change is completely, you know, what everyone says it is, but you might also think that it's just science. But many people see all that data and they think it's a religious mandate to live a radically different way of life. And so I'm not saying they're wrong or right. It's actually just to point out this complexity and in some ways embarrassment that, you know, we see in some circles, like why would you, maybe we shouldn't be talking about this in Sunday school, but even liberal people are talking about it in Sunday school, kind of just from the other side. Mm -hmm. And then secular people are also kind of have their own Sunday school, right? If you think about someone like Al Gore, what is he doing? He's not popularizing science per se, because he, he doesn't even know science is evolved. He's popularizing a story that he thinks is true and a story that tells us how we need to live in response to some really big issue about what's really true. And when you frame it that way, then you can tell the whole climate movement, like a lot of movements in science, is both a movement about empirical data and research, and it's a movement about what we think humans ought to do in response to it. And when you conflate those two things, I think that produces a lot of the so-called denialism because I think much climate denialism is not by people who are dumb and they don't think there's scientific data or that science doesn't matter. I think it's people who can quite clearly tell that whatever the scientific data is, it's being politicized, right? Or it's being weaponized 
And I do think, unfortunately, everyone in our culture is doing that. Like, in other words, the big players are right. all doing that, whether they're religious or conservative. Or, and, and again, I think that's unfortunate. That's something where I'd like to see a cultural shift in which we let science be its own thing and we don't ask it to save us or ask it to tell us how to live. What's interesting, you talk about saving us. Um, it's a bit off topic, but there's a, a kind of a transhuman movement where people are putting their hope in a sort of future where you can bio-augment your body and to improve it, to heal it, even eventually to interface it with technology to add longevity to, your, longevity to yourself. And it's really interesting that there is a sort of like salvation motif. And um, I can't remember, I think it's called futurism is what people call this, but this transhumanism, futurism, this, this kind of future that seems maybe five, 10, 20 years out, you invest money and time because you're hoping actually for some you're hoping for immortality or something close to that actually not fully immortality but you want to live for 500 years a thousand years no, it is some of it is immortality now you're right well, i actually write about this one of my popular pieces is called the vibrant religious life of silicon valley and why it's mm. killing the economy but i talk yes no transhumanism is like there's a lot of versions of it as you say but no you're right it is absolutely part of the science of salvation um religion and transhumanism is unquestionably from a modern academic scholar of religion standpoint like myself it's unquestionably a religious movement that does not and this is what's so important that does not mean it's not scientific in terms of its concerns but it is not about science fundamentally even though it involves really impressive research agendas and it creates new research agendas particularly of course in biotech but the fund like the big transhumanist ideology in silicon valley one of the most popular ones is associated with ray kurzweil and kurzweil thinks that around 2050 there'll be a singularity in which the advancing, you know, based on Moore's law, the incredible advancing rate of computer technology and AI will eventually transform the world in which our biology can be uploaded into data or bits. And he does think that we will be able to live immortally in the clouds. So no, this stuff is actually- that's <laughs> But in right. the tech clouds. <laughs> exactly, in that's the tech hilarious. clouds. But it's a, I think it's, it's absolutely a kind of version of Christianity, a version of Platonism in which the essence of humans is something immaterial. Yeah. Right, this is very weird if you think about it. That's why I don't even accept that we're a materialistic uh, culture in a scientific sense. There's people who are transhumanists who transhumanists try to claim they're materialists because materialism is the, the secular position, de rigueur. But in fact, transhumanism it has to be based on a digital or non-physical understanding of human identity. Because if you're not, if you're fully analog, you couldn't be translated into digital bits. So there has to be the essence of humans and the transhumanist, this particular tech version of it in Silicon Valley. You have to think humans are something like what our cultures always thought they were, which is like something like an immortal soul where you could upload our mind mm. and somehow even without the organic brain, you know, you could live forever. And Ray Kurzweil, there's an article for your listeners, if you're interested, if you keep this part in the New Yorker, a long article, too long, I think, but worth reading, in which Kurzweil's motivations are very personal. He, he wants, he really believes that he will be able to see his father again by uploading the memories of his father that he has from his artifacts, from his dead father. And he wants to talk to his father again, even if it's some AI simulation. And so we think that science fiction is something out there. Science fiction is our lives right now, whether we realize yeah, I, it or not. Yeah, I think so. When people talk about injecting a virus into your body, then activating it later to produce a healing process or the reduplication of your our DNA or whatnot. It's kind of science fiction and wild. You know, I never thought about that. They almost have a, a, a brain 
noose or brain mind distinction if you're going to upload your your consciousness into the cloud and therefore live without your material body well i kind of want to dial it down we i don't want to i know you've been gracious and kind to talk and to explain all your hard wrought research one of the reasons um one of the things i found are extremely helpful in your overview of history is that philosophy and religion are, are kind of wedded and for me that's because i christianity like which i believe to be true is a way of life it was called the way uh, and mm -hmm. jesus of course taught entrance into salvation but if you look at his teachings they're about a way in which you should live and i think even all the the apostles teach that and the early church really builds into that um so i'd be curious to know like what sort of works would you recommend to kind of be introduced to this sort of ancient you know pre-first century milieu of philosophy ways of life and religion how they connect is there anything out there i know some of it you're doing is, is unique and cutting against the grain but what what solid works are out there that could be an introduction to this field that we could purchase after this podcast <laughs> <laughs> sure um there's a, a christian um radio intellectual of ken myers who you may or may not know but myers is a very admirable audio um, magazine called the mars soul journal and he says he has the gift of bibliography which i think is quite wonderful so i'm i'm happy to exercise my own gift of bibliography i think there's two books people are interested in some of the stuff i've said there's two books that are very serious works of scholarship that if you read them and took them seriously they would they would begin to really help you understand the ancient world and change how you think about philosophy and religion. One is a book I mentioned in my podcast. It's by a guy named A.D. Nock, N-O-C-K. His name is Arthur Darby Nock. He was this really quite extraordinary classicist and historian of ancient religion at Harvard in the kind of early to mid part of the 20th century. And he kind of, he's very modest, but in, in, he was a really stunning scholar, like at a level that's very rare. Um, and he wrote a book called Conversion, and that is simply an essential work. Um, it's a study of the origins of the idea of conversion from um, very sort of far back in Greek antiquity, starting with where it should start, which is the Pythagorean school up to Augustine. And that really gives you a very deep kind of historical understanding of the fact that the idea that you convert to something that gives you new doctrines and teachings, like what we think of as a religion, Nock shows you that that originated in philosophy. So it is historically the case that what you're describing, and I agree, the way you're describing Christianity, if people talk that way, I think it would be a lot more appealing to people, right? In, in Acts, it's their disciples of the way. Um, they're disciples of the path. It, it connects immediately if you're interested in things like Taoism with this very interesting identification of reality with something like the Tao or the Tao. Um, so the, the idea of like the path as the center of life, finding the path, finding the person who can open the path for you or who incarnates the path, um, which Jesus obviously claims and he says he's the way, the truth, and the life. So he is the way. So that's a very powerful view and, and Nock would help a person put that in historical context. And then even more specifically, a really great work, there was a French scholar who only just recently died, I believe in the past decade or so, named Pierre Adot, H-A-D-O-T. And um, most of his, not all of it, but a lot of his major work has been translated from French by Harvard University Press and the University of Chicago. And he has a famous essay called Philosophy as a Way of Life, which is worth reading. But um, if someone's going to buy a book, he has a book by that title. It's a collection of essays. But the better book, if you're just going to read one book by him on this topic, why it is, it's called What is Ancient Philosophy? 
And um, what's really useful is I have some minor, not all minor, significant quibbles with Ado, but I'm completely in his tradition as a scholar um, and a historian of philosophy. And Hado shows you he, that what ancient philosophy was is a way of life centered on what he calls spiritual practices. And he basically takes you from the foundation in broadly speaking, Plato up into medieval Christianity. And this is you know, part of the narrative I mentioned only in passing in my own series, the first season, which is that if you were to really tell the history of uh, medieval philosophy, it would not look like what we teach in the universities. It would include that but it would include much more of what we would consider monastic piety because that's the actual inheritor of the philosophy as a way of life. And so when I taught, for example, Benedict's um, you know, rule when I was teaching medieval Christianity to my students at Yale, I taught it as a kind of philosophical constitution because that's what it really is. It's an actual document that's like the US constitution that creates a new way of life for a radically changing historical period that ended up in a way, reshaping the Western world and ended up being able to be adapted across many different cultural contexts. And, you know, you could say the Benedictine monastery has finally had its day. But even if you thought it was exhausted, maybe in the Reformation period and corrupted, if you think about it, one sort of brilliant, pious man who wrote this beautiful text that ended up preserving so much of the legacy of the whole pagan world that was known at that time, what was he doing? He was doing exactly what the ancients would have called philosophy. And I think it's a beautiful story to see that the story of philosophy includes all of our cultural traditions, including cultural traditions from the East. And so I think especially even if you're a conservative person or a conservative Christian, I think all of us want resources to be more inclusive without losing our fidelity to our own commitments. And I think the, the good news is the better we understand history, the more we'll see the diversity is built right into it, right into our own traditions. Well, that's helpful. Um, thank you for those book recommendations. Uh, and I suppose we can find you on the on Twitter, the Marginalia. Uh, yeah, you can find me on books. Twitter at, uh, at Samuel Longcar, and my website is www.samuelongcar.com. Cool. Thanks, Samuel. I appreciate the conversation. It was helpful to talk to you, and I thank you for your time. Thanks, Wyatt. I appreciate being on your podcast.